On this episode of AppTalk, we welcome Boeing 757 and 767 Captain Ken Hoke to the show for a chat about life as a cargo pilot. And we run down whose new aircraft are certified and who recently took delivery of some special airplanes. Hello and welcome to episode 26 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here with... Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, number 26. Number 26. We've passed the... I don't even know what the 25th anniversary is. Silver anniversary? Uh, yeah, let's go with that. So... Uh, we we it's it's come and gone. So now we're we're on to on to twenty six. We'll get that but, gold but watch one day. We can celebrate more things today that 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 occurred just today. The E one ninety E two received not one, not two, but three certifications today. Pretty big deal. It is a pretty big deal. Puts it on track to. Uh, they, they were certified by Brazil, the U.S., and the European. European Aviation Safety Agency. So they're ready to fly. They're ready for deliveries on April 1st, they said, to Widro, which is a Norwegian-based carrier. It'll be interesting. Yeah, they'll be operated for thin air, actually. They've been in the schedule for months and months and months at this point, which is strange. Mm. But if you want to book it, you can go... The 24th of April, I believe? Yeah, so it's coming up, but it's been in the schedule for like half a year at this point. But if you want to fly a brand new E2, you got to make your way out to Finland. Okay. I'm just trying to think if that's something that we should do. I mean, probably. Okay, let's go. Yeah, why not? I'll meet you there. Yeah, Finnair A350 out to Helsinki and then, you know, pick up the E2. That sounds good to me. Yeah, the E2 actually, uh, somebody tipped me off that it actually, one of them, I think the profit hunter, they call it, the one with the, I guess, the, the leopard. Painted or I think a, it's a tiger. Tiger, cat, I don't know, whatever spotted large cat is painted on front of it. It's actually at JFK right now. And you can see on, on this site you, you may have heard of called Flight Radar 24. It tracks- Never heard of it. Is it right? New? It must be new. I've heard of it before. But it tracks right into JetBlue's hangar, which is very interesting. They don't have the E2 on order. They have something like 24 more E190, E, E1. Are we calling them E1s now? I, I guess. OG, original, original E190s <laughs> on order. So who knows? Maybe they want to show off the E2. Maybe they're announcing an order for the E2, but it's there. So good for them though. So speaking of Embraer's and, and things that absolutely don't matter but are kind of quizzical – you started a thing, and I'm holding you personally responsible for, for uh, a Bloomberg yeah, this article. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take the blame for this one. So explain what happened. So someone on Twitter tipped me off. I think it was Mike Eisler. We, we've mentioned him a few times, the guy with the job where he takes video of airplanes for a living, which sounds amazing. But someone sent him off that there was a little United Express Embraer E-175 ever so slowly hopping its way across the world, not just a flight from Newark to to Buffalo, but routes. um, I don't have the route in front of me, but it went from like Colorado Springs to Boeing Field up to Anchorage, Mm -hmm. over to Vladivostok in Russia and into Inner Mongolia. I don't know where the damn thing is now, but it it went. It went Anchorage to Anadir. Anadir to Magadan, Magadan of Vladivostok. I'm sure you get all this pronunciation right. Hohot, and then from Hohot went. Where did it go? That's where where it, we it went to NA. Matter. NA. I don't know where that is. Ordos. It was the last flight was actually really short. It was only uh, yep. 
I think down, it's a down half to, hour to Ordos. Yeah. So um, I got so in that, contact. That's all I know so far. United got in contact with me and explained the situation. It's not out in China on a on a covert black ops mission like some people on Twitter <laughs> suggested, which you know not the crazy guess. But it was the. It's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy. The aircraft is owned by United. It is typically operated by Mesa, but Embraer wanted a an E one seventy five out in China or wherever it actually ended up as a static display, basically to show off to customers of Hey, look at this shiny new airplane. Maybe you want to buy some. So Embraer worked out a deal with Mesa and United to borrow it. They they leased it out, and I think it's actually being operated by National Airlines or something crazy like that. And basically, they just brought it out there, and it will be back flying your your normal stupid regional jet flights between Denver and Colorado Springs, and I think later this week. But all of that turned into, I, I think, an article in Bloomberg, and that got syndicated. Who knows where? So good work. Thank you. Well, this is just just I was really interested because it was this one picture. Of um, this United Express E one seventy five in Vladivostok, or one of these crazy Russian cities where, like, normal aircraft do not go, and it just looks so ridiculously out of place that I needed to know more. And 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 we learned more. And <laughs> I I emailed one of the spokespersons at United when you brought it up. You're like, find out more. And I was like, okay, well, why not? Got an email back pretty quickly. It was like, it, it's it's fine. Like, there's there's nothing wrong here. It's like no one stole our plane, so it was you know that was, was reassuring. I mean, it just looked it it just looked kind of crazy. It's not you don't ordinarily see an E one seventy five transitioning through Anchorage, Alaska, on up with a planned flight to to Eastern Russia. That just doesn't look right. Just 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 your everyday you know borrowing a plane. Yep, it happens. What else? What else happened? Oh, the the Max Nine got certified. Yay! Well, I mean, it's important for. Reasons and things, I think. That's all we got. That's all we got. But it's certified. It's going to go to Lion Air Group to start out with. One of uh, the nine billion they have on order. Who knows knows what airline it will actually end up flying with? That's a great question. I think they have like five different airlines within the group and they're changing names or Melindo is not Melindo. It's Batik Air Indonesia. Nobody really knows. And and when when it's finally painted and repainted, we we sell this because the first Max 8 got delivered, then transferred, re-registered, painted, unpainted, painted again, and now I think it's flying for somebody. Somebody. It will eventually – I think it's in Lion Air livery now. Yeah, it will eventually fly for United. I think they recently announced the the specs and configuration and all that. But Not uh, not the Lion Air one. No. A separate Max 9. Yes, a separate Max 9 for United. But again, just like the A320neo, I am very uninterested in this because it's just boring. I mean as we see right now, there's a conversation going on on Twitter. Someone we follow, uh, Jonathan Koo – or junk on Twitter is just now realizing that the A320neo is nothing more than a mere re-engining of the A320 and he's suddenly very unenthusiastic about a flight. <laughs> well, especially when the, you know, the inside of the aircraft is often less passenger friendly. Right. Um, There's literally nothing about American 737 Max 8 that makes me want to fly on an American 73 Max 8. And I'm sure it's going to be the same across every airline. I want to try one just to see the bathroom that everyone's uh, complaining to, about. I mean, those you can find elsewhere. Those have been out there for years. Go just find a, a Delta, pretty much anything refurbished, and you'll find your tiny bathroom. 
Okay. Okay. There, there are exceptions. They're not all terrible. Fly Dubai has a beautiful interior on their new 7.3 Max, but they're the that's true exception, not the rule. So what else is going on this week? There's a, a there's a new wind blowing this week. Windy in Europe, quite literally. So in a, in a weird not it's not weird it happens, but it's unusual, out of the ordinary. The jet stream kind of moved, and instead of blowing from west to east and pushing flights like we've talked about in the past episodes with, you know, like Norwegian breaking the the subsonic speed record between New York and, and London. We've got flights that are shaving two hours off coming the other way now because as, as what are they calling it, Jason? The beast from the east. There you go. See, I, I feel like we need like a regular good name for, for the jet stream. We don't have that. El Nino? No, oh, I mean, yeah, I don't know what that really is, but it's caused some bit of havoc, especially it seems like in Dublin, they've had JFK New York-ish kind of issues where they're overwhelmed by the snowfall, they clear it, and then they close again. I think there was a uh, this morning an Aer Lingus A330 from Boston to Dublin diverted back to Shannon, took off to go back to Dublin, and by the time they did that, Dublin closed again, so they had to re-divert back to Shannon, so... Europe is doing its best crappy northeastern U.S. airport impersonation, and they did a really it's, good job. Uh, it's, it's good times, yeah. Yeah, they, they've been having a lot of a lot of snow issues today, especially, and I guess it's supposed to continue tomorrow. So Heathrow's already consolidating flights, and and Gatwick's doing the same. So I that'll, think there was that'll the, be. I think there was a power outage thrown in in Amsterdam just for good measure and fun. I know, I know, one of the United flights that was supposed to go. Where was it, it supposed I, to I go? think it was supposed to go Dublin, went all the way to Dublin. Brussels. It went all the way to Brussels, yeah. So that's, I mean, that's at least they can get reaccommodated there, there. There are many, many cities that United serves between Dublin and Brussels. That, that struck me as very odd. I'm sure there was a reason. There's always a reason. We may well, never know, <laughs> we, but there but, was a reason. But there's always a reason. I mean, we found the reason that E-175 went to <laughs> China, so there's always a reason. I, I have to say I'm still a bit disappointed that that's the reason. Maybe that's the cover reason. Uh, see, no, this is how conspiracy theories get started, and I, I don't want to be responsible never start for that a conspiracy. No way. <laughs> yeah, okay. Like I, I, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll just leave it at that. Let's transition mightily over to some very sad news, and and the the second crash in in just a few weeks after one of the the longest. Uh, uninterrupted you know crash free or, or fatality free crashes and we there was an ATR 72 in Iran that crashed while it was approaching the the city of Yasuj and uh, un- unfortunately it took quite a while to to reach the crash site and and there were no survivors after after everything was found so it's one of those very early stages of the investigation. Yeah, we, we just don't know much right now. Probably won't for at least a, a little while. A, a while, yeah. Yeah, there was also really no coverage for this aircraft since it had an old transponder. It was not transmitting ADSB. Am I right about that? Yeah, no. So it, it's a it's an older mode S transponder. So the kind that broadcasts much less information out out of the transponder than the newer ADSB transponders. So for for mode S transponders only, we need four receivers to to catch the signal from the aircraft to to create a position. We we call it MLAT for short because multilateration is is hard to pronounce on cue. 
but basically think of like you know triangulating a cell phone signal or something like that when you're using your phone to to find the best tower or something like that we take the the signals and in, in four receivers to basically ascertain the position of the flight that we didn't have but we did have altitude data so we saw the you know descending from from what they were cruising at down through about 17,000 feet and then didn't have anything after that um, so so it's so when and if we hear more, we'll give an update. Yeah, that's uh, we're we're hoping to not have to update on any crashes in the, in future episodes, or recent or recent upcoming episodes in in the near future. So hopefully this is uh, this is this is where we're at, and this is where we stop with this kind of news. But another another sad sad event. What do you say we take a break? Good idea. From there. When we come back, we will have Ken Hoke with us live, recorded, but recording it live? Anyway. Or something. Not not pre-recorded, and we're going to talk to him. And we're going to talk to him about flying cargo. We're going to talk to him about where he got started and how he's you know progressed in his career. And we're going to talk to him about you know what it's like to fly – you know, where he wants to fly and, and why he likes doing it. And, and we'll get a few, hopefully some, some good stories along the way. So stick with us and we'll be back with Ken Hoke in just a moment. As promised, we are back now with Ken Hoke, who is a Boeing 757-76 captain. We've always described him as a as a captain for a Package Express airline. I believe last episode I described it as drably colored. Are we going to reveal the truth this time? We're going to reveal the truth right now. <laughs> Ken Hoke, a captain with UPS Airlines, welcome to AvTalk. Thanks. It's great to be here, guys. Uh, thanks for inviting me. So I, I think first we should say thank you for for last episode, your introduction to to our podcast. We we asked you to define METAR, and you came back to us with an absolutely wonderful explanation, complete with sound effects that we were not expecting. Did you ever so, find the sound so effect for, for volcanic that. ash? Or are we still looking for that one? Yeah, I, I gave up. I, I think it's a, probably a loud explosion followed by whoosh or something like yeah, you that. Don't but, hear that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we just don't want to hear that. Some <laughs> someone on Twitter suggested that it would be uh, Captain Moody's announcement to the British Airways flight <laughs> after good. they had lost all four engines. <laughs> I ah, thought that was a, a, a decent ooh, yeah. one. Not too much distress. Yeah. No. Ouch. Yeah, we don't want to do that. Today we're not. Well, we might define something. Who knows? But <laughs> that's not exactly why we brought you on. We brought you on to talk about. First of all, being a pilot and being a, a cargo pilot, especially because you know you're flying as a passenger when you're flying in an airline, you get a, a little bit more insight into what's going on up front. You you can see the the pilots working before the flight, or or you just see them in the terminal and things like that. With cargo pilots, I mean, you you see the outside of the plane, you know, flying, and and that's pretty much it. And it, it's a bit of a mystery, I think, to most people. So we wanted to talk to you about that, and and some of the things that you've helped us out in the past as a jumping off point for conversation. But but this week I posted on Twitter. A, a very tongue-in-cheek, and some people took me seriously, and that was a bit scary, saying that the the short 330, which was variously described as a refrigerator box with wings. Garbage and can. So, uh, Jason described it as a garbage can, and someone else mentioned that it's the only airplane that's ever had a bird strike from behind. <laughs> 
So yeah, flying box car. I think that's another one. Yeah, or and flying that was shoe box. So yeah. so you you chimed into the conversation saying that you started off flying which aircraft was it? I flew for a uh, American Eagle uh, flying Metroliner twos and threes, Metro twos and threes. Sometimes they're called Merlins, but it's a swear engine aircraft and uh, really long and skinny. They were <laughs> the nickname for them uh, is the San Antonio sewer pipe because they were built in San Antonio <laughs> and they're skinny, just just like a long skinny tube. They're great fun to fly. Uh, it's a good plane for pilots. Not a whole lot of comfort for passengers. I haven't heard too many positive comments about sitting in the back seat of one. I think they still uh, operate out west for some cargo airlines. I think I saw the last they, time I was at the Phoenix. Might. There was a whole fleet of them. Yeah, and there's also a bunch in Minneapolis. When uh, On the UPS ramp in Minneapolis, there's a bunch of feeders. I think there might be a couple up there. Actually, most of those are beach products. But yeah, you still see you still see Merlins here and there. So, so you, you started there, and and you're currently flying the the 757 and 767 now. So how did right. you get from from there to to here? Well, I started. I'm all civilian, civilian background, and I started flying at uh, Middle Tennessee State University, MTSU in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, is where I got my degree. Flight instruction background, I did single engine instrument and multi-engine instruction in the Murfreesboro area, Smyrna, Tennessee area. Flew Part 135 Charter, flew Piper Aztecs, Piper Chieftain, Piper Navajo, Cessna, some of the twin Cessnas, I don't remember the numbers anymore. Also flew part-time at the Tennessee Department of Forestry, looking at uh, pine beetles and forest fires. And that was that was all before I got on an American Eagle in uh, back in Nashville when they had a hub in Nashville. But I flew the um, metros for a year or so as a, in the right seat, and then I upgraded the left seat in the Jetstream Thirty One. We had they called them Thirty Two Hundred Ones. They were Super Thirty Ones. They were you know so much more super than the regular Thirty Ones. I guess. Yeah, Americans big fan of you know upgrading things to the super. Yeah, these were super all right. <laughs> I think they had a little bit heavier takeoff weight or something, which still wasn't enough. But uh, yeah, I flew those for a while. And that was that was a great job. That was fun flying out of Nashville to, you know, in North Carolina, Kentucky, down in uh, Mississippi, Alabama. So Southeast U.S. had was covered. And then, then I hit the jackpot. I scored a job at UPS back in uh, late 1990. Put in my application, got an interview, and they hired me. And uh, the rest is history. I started out at UPS on the the mighty Douglas DC-8 uh, as a flight engineer. DC-8, wow. So how much training was there switching from, I guess, your history of flying propeller-driven aircraft to the mighty DC-8? <laughs> well... It was interesting. It was definitely a change for me because I, I went to the backseat of the DCA, which is the flight engineer panel. So there, there wasn't any flying at all. So you go to a couple of months of school, learn about all the systems, learn you know everything about what makes the airplane tick and then how to operate the engineer panel. And back then, the engineer panel, you ran... 10 fuel tanks and all the levers and gears and pumps to, to move fuel back and forth between tanks to the, to the four engines, pressurization system, electric, pneumatics, hydraulics, you had everything back there. So that was, it was, it was a lot of fun for 25 year old, 
young pilot get to play with all that cool gear. But I did that for about four years. But but then it was time to start learning how to fly again. Because after after flying the regional, then sitting in the back seat of a of a DC eight as a flight engineer, then I had to go up to the front right seat. And after four years of not flying anything and start over again. So that was fun. <laughs> so I went from, yeah, twin engine turboprop to a flight engineer panel and then flying a four engine jet. So that was a culture shock. Wow. And UPS kept the DC-8 around quite a long time, didn't they? I don't remember exactly when they retired, but it wasn't all that long ago, was it? Yeah, it was about, I want to say about nine years now. Because I finally I got displaced off the DC eight and uh, went over to the seven five seven six, which which was another cultural uh, shock. You know, going from a nineteen fifties technology all the way up to a nineteen eighties technology. Yeah, you wouldn't think of uh, the the seven six seven as technologically advanced these days, but when you're coming from the uh, the DC eight with yeah. an engineer station, it's quite a leap. Oh yeah. Yep, yep, it was a leap. Now they 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 almost don't call seven fives uh, glass cockpits because it's it's got two little glass screens for each pilot in the front, and the rest are round dials. Anything uh, with a, a CRT based screen can't be a glass cockpit at this point. <laughs> Hardly, and, and of course the new cockpits aren't glass either; they're LCD screens, so they're plastic. plastic. I guess we have to call them plastic cockpits now, I suppose. But yeah, so that was fun transitioning from a DC-8 to left seat of a 757 and 767. And well, we get to do another big transition here pretty soon. Uh, UPS just started sending their seven, I think our first 757 went in to be, to have a new cockpit installed. So they're putting in the large screen displays and all of our airplanes. Glass or plastic? Well, I think I think they're plastic. I think they're, they're LCDs, so that's that's plastic, right? Something like that, I think. How much transitioning does that take to go from you know the, the current you know seven fifty seven look, looking at that that flight deck up to a brand? I mean, it's not a different airplane to fly, but there's a lot of changes there. Yeah, and and I can't answer that question for you because I don't know yet. We, we haven't seen we haven't seen the training program yet, and we haven't seen what's going to be involved in the in the transition but pretty soon we'll see it because our first airplanes was sent to i can't remember where they sent it but yeah the first airplane's getting converted so pretty soon we're going to be starting training i'm sure it'll it'll be a little bit of home uh, home study computer based training probably some videos and probably there may be a training uh, session in a classroom or a, a training device of some sort. So are the 7.5 and 7.6 more similar than they're dissimilar? Or, or how difficult is it to swap Ooh. between the two? It's not hard. The cockpits, once you sit down in the seats, the cockpits are virtually identical. There's a, a few minor systems differences because the 7.6 was designed as an ETOPS airplane, so so it has some extra things on it. But if you if you were to just hop in and sit down and look at the overhead panel, look at the, the front panel, you might not even notice a difference. They do fly a little bit different, but after, after a couple of weeks of going back and forth, you, I don't even think about it. You just, just hop in and go. There's a, there's a few memory item kind of things that, are, that vary engine starting the engines a little bit different but 
Yeah, it's it's very they're both very intuitive, jump in and go. So which one do you like better? Which flies better? Which are you more I guess you're probably comfortable in both, but if you had to pick if they said you could fly to Anchorage in a 75 or a 76, everything else being the same, what do you pick? Oh, you said Anchorage, so that that, that influences the judgment. See, for long for long flight 76 all the way. It's like a it's like a big fat Cadillac, you know, big comfy seats, <laughs> smooth ride. But if you're going to fly like from Louisville to Chicago, I'm going to get in a 75 because it's more fun to fly. It's it's more like more like a sports car. Well, they they called it the Atari Ferrari back in the day because it was state of the art video game, you know. So the, the 76 is the comfort ride, the the the, uh, yep. the Cadillac. Seven six is a Cadillac, and the the seven five is a sports car. So I I do I do really enjoy flying both of them, and depending on the mission, they're both fun to fly. So Ken, you are a cargo pilot, and I'm very interested in the differences between kind of what your workload is, you know, from flight to flight versus a commercial pilot who, who's carrying passengers, and we'll we'll be generous to passengers and not call them cargo as well. <laughs> Self-loading cargo. Yes, exactly. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be generous to them. But I mean, I'm curious to know what, what the difference is like between how you prepare for a flight versus how someone flying, you know, passengers on a 767 might prepare for a flight. Uh, okay. Uh, well, it's been a few years since I've had passengers, but <laughs> <laughs> the jobs are similar. Pre-flight, both a pilot for a, a passenger and a cargo, we're going to be looking at weather. You show up to work an hour, hour and a half early. We don't obviously we don't have flight attendants, so that's one piece of the puzzle that a passenger crew will uh, have to coordinate things with with the rest of the with the cabin crew. We we don't have a cabin crew. We do spend more time, I think, talking to load supervisors. Uh, let's see, and then once once the cockpit door is closed, I think the jobs are probably pretty similar. We don't we don't have to worry about. Uh, seatbelt signs uh, as much. Have you ever had a disruptive passenger? (laughs) I had a disruptive passenger in the terminal, not on the airplane. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that was a good story. I don't know. Do you want a good story? Always want a good story. Yeah. Tri-Cities, Tennessee. First flight of the morning. It was like 7 a.m. from uh, Tri-Cities to Nashville. We show up. There had been an ice storm that night in Tri-Cities. And the mechanic couldn't get the airplane open. It was like an ice cube. He couldn't get the the main cabin door open on the jet stream. And he tried and tried, and he just couldn't get the airplane thawed out to the point where we could get get it de-iced and and get moving. And there was one passenger booked on that flight to Nashville. And uh, they ended up canceling that flight and just uh, waiting until the there was another flight scheduled two or three hours from then. So they canceled the first one and just rebooked this guy on the second one. Well, I made the mistake of of walking into the terminal to to get some breakfast and some coffee. And this guy saw me and he he kind of walks toward me and he says, are, "Are you are you flying this airplane?" And I said, "Well, unfortunately, we canceled because we can't, you know, can't get in it. It's frozen." <laughs> and and he he looks at me and he goes, I know why you canceled it. I'm the only one on there. You're not going to fly this airplane because you didn't want to fly one guy. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's not why. You know, they need this airplane in Nashville. So then he proceeded to like start yelling and screaming at me. And I was like, uh, you know, 
sheepishly slinking off, trying to trying to hide. Everyone knows that yelling and screaming fixes everything. I'm sure the ice melted immediately once you started yelling. Yeah, yeah. That, so that was awkward. <laughs> you should have sent him. You should have sent him outside to go yell at the yeah, plane. That, that would work that yeah, great. Blow some hot air on the airplane. But uh, no, sir, sir, just yell louder, yeah, but, please. But I mean, that was a piece of cake. I, I've never had a a, a two hundred and sixty passenger airplane with two hundred and sixty angry angry faces at me. So, so that that's one difference between passengers and cargo. There is there's a lot of a lot more passenger service demand on a flight crew when you've got a lot of, of people in the back. Uh, on the cargo side of that, you have the pressure of, of thousands of packages making a sort. And it, that gets to be really critical. When, when One of the things that surprised me when I got hired at UPS was how much pressure, or I shouldn't say pressure, but, but how important it was to, to get those planes into the hubs on time so that the things could get sorted. It's a, it's a really big deal and the company pays a lot of attention to timing, how everything works, speed, speeds of the airplanes. Everything is managed down to the minute, how fast we fly, altitudes, everything's optimized just to make sure the cargo gets to where it needs to go at the right amount of t- in the right time so it can coordinate with other cargo and, you know, Similar to passengers making a, a sort, but but it's similar but different. I guess it's hard hard to describe. Have you have you ever had the the chance to fly the? D- does UPS do a hot spare as well? They sure do. Yeah. So have you ever had a chance to fly that? Yeah. What's the? I mean, to me, for for those that that don't know what a hot spare is, and can correct me if I'm wrong in any part of this. Sure. Basically, an empty plane takes off from from an airport and. If it's needed to, it lands at another airport where something has gone wrong. Either uh, a plane has gone tech or there's been a a larger amount of packages or something like that to make sure that all of the packages get to where they need to go. But it takes off empty every night and that's crazy to me. Now, this this is something UPS used to do and I used to do it on the DC-8. We used to do it... There was a, probably a couple. They would do a couple airplanes, a couple different parts of the country. We have not done that for several years now. But okay. what you described, we called it the airborne hot spare, and they would fuel us up. They would give us a flight plan. They would follow our flight plan to, from Louisville to Minneapolis. Then they would put they put three box lunches on for us, <laughs> and we take off from Louisville and we head out over. Minneapolis, and we would tell the controllers they they were used to seeing us. They knew what we were there for, and we would just uh, go in a holding pattern at like twenty eight, twenty nine thousand feet, and pull back to our economic, most economic speed, power setting, and we would just hold. And we would have enough fuel to hold for say an hour, two hours. And and what we were doing was we were holding during that critical two hours when. All the airplanes in the Northeast United States were preparing to launch inbound to, to Worldport in Louisville. And if an airplane started firing up its engines and all of a sudden had a problem, they would immediately divert us to that airport to, to do a rescue. And so within 30, 40 minutes, we could be to you know, a dozen different airports in the Northeast U.S., why Minneapolis? Was it just proximity to other proximity, major? Proximity, yeah, know? yeah. Near you know Chicago, Minneapolis, uh, Milwaukee. You know, there's there's probably 
probably a dozen airports, uh, Des Moines up there in that vicinity. So it's it just a good proximity to get to a bunch of places. When you were up emergency. there on those hot airborne spares, how often were you actually needed uh, as opposed to how often you actually just went back to uh, Lexington it, and called it a day? You Usually, oh gosh, we probably got not very often. It was rare. The company felt that one rescue where you could – Swoop, swoop down and you know get all this cargo and get it to Louisville almost on time. One rescue would pay for weeks and weeks and weeks of this thing doing it. But as I said, I guess they they felt the the necessity of it. Well, we don't we don't do it anymore. So obviously, it's not. Is it that reliability of the newer modern aircraft is just that much better than the, the old DC eights? It could be, and we yeah we also had seven twenty sevens back then too. It could be a, a reliability issue, or it could just be. We also have hot ground spares in Louisville, so when something breaks, let's say a flight from Chicago to Louisville has a problem, an issue, maintenance issue, they would launch the Louisville hot spare from Louisville up to Chicago, and they would rescue the the freight and bring it back into Worldport. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't. I'm not sure what the the, the the reason behind doing it or not doing it. So when we talked to Andrew, we talked a lot about what's actually on board the aircraft, and we we got that ketchup uh, packets. awesome revela- revelation. There's yeah. ketchup packets because ketchup of packets. course that was great. Uh, yeah, I'll never let that one go. But are you aware, or are at least a little aware of what exactly it is you're hauling? Uh, I know lithium-ion batteries are a huge concern these days. Is it does it jump out to you in the manifest that you have these batteries? We do. Or yeah, do you- uh, well, with especially with lithium ions lately, we get a list of hazardous materials that we're hauling with each flight. If if we're haul, if we have declared hazardous materials, we'll get a an inventory of what they are and where on the airplane they're located. And so in that respect, now sometimes we don't know if they're in phones or TVs or whatever. We just know we have them and we know how many we have. And and those aren't the ones we're really worried about. If if companies declare them, we know that they're carefully packed. And there's probably safe, but usually we don't. We don't know exactly what we're carrying because we're carrying thousands of packages from different from different companies, manufacturers, from you know people sending stuff to their kids in college. There there are times that we will get special shipments. Holidays are interesting. You know, we just had a we just had Mardi Gras last month. I had an interesting flight a few years ago, right uh, before Mardi Gras from New Orleans to Louisville, I took a 767 completely full of king cakes from uh, <laughs> That's bakeries, great. Yeah, from bakeries in New Orleans and in Louisiana, flying them while well, they were being sent all over the world, people ordering king cakes. So, so sometimes we'll go, what, a, what is all that you guys are loading back there? And the load supervisor will say, you're getting a load of king cakes. So, <laughs> Someone's yeah. gonna do it. so hey, so, so sometimes we'll get special shipments like that, like especially during holidays. Well, another good one. Now, I don't fly uh, the South American routes, but Valentine's Day, we had plane load after plane load of uh, flowers flying from South America up to uh, to our Miami hub, which then they, they get sorted and redistributed throughout the country. 
throughout the world. Right. So you're not always flying these planes when you're on board. Obviously, there's sometimes where you're, you're deadheading, you're moving between locations. What's that like in some of these aircraft? Ah, jump seating. Yeah. And, and that varies. Uh, probably the, the most comfortable, We our 747s have old domestic style business class seats in the upper deck of the 747 behind the cockpit. That's a, that's a really nice way to fly. When often that, if I'm jump seating from Louisville to Anchorage or from uh, Anchorage over to Asia, they'll put me on one of our 747s. So that's very comfortable ride. MD, MD 11 has uh, fairly comfortable seats as well. Our A300s have really comfortable seats. I'd probably prefer flying in the A300 jump seats over everything. 7.6 has okay accommodations. 7.5 is tiny inside. Not not a really comfortable plane to jump seat in. Unless you have to unless you right, absolutely have to get somewhere and that's the way to go then sure. Wonder what the jump seats on the, the your your company's new seven four dash eight. I haven't like. seen them. Well, I've seen pictures of them, but I haven't been in one yet. So I'm I'm very curious to see how those are. But I've I've heard that they're they're pretty nice. Ken, speaking of the the seven four seven dish, are, are you kind of set as a seven five seven seven six seven captain, and and you're just you know that that's where you want to be, or or is there? Do you kind of look at the seven four seven every once in a while and go maybe? I, I'm happy where I'm at. We, I'm in a position, this, my, my level of seniority, I can fly any fleet I want. I can go to any domicile I want. So where I'm at, I, the, the 7576 international domicile is in Louisville. I live in Louisville. My family's here. Uh, My wife's family is, is here as well. So I certainly don't want to leave Louisville. Our 747s are all based in Anchorage right for now. So if I were to go fly the 747, I would either have to move the family to, to Anchorage or I would have to commute to Anchorage. And I, I would get the same pay, which that's one thing that's really nice about UPS that's a little different from other airlines is all the all the different airplanes pay pilots get the same hourly pay, regardless of how big the aircraft is. At most airlines, larger airplanes pay more. But with UPS we, we don't have that differential pay, which is which is nice. You don't have to chase an airplane to get more money. So I really like the variety of the routes that I fly. I like living in Louisville. I don't have to fly, take a jump seat to Anchorage and lose a couple of days a month uh, jump seating and in, in, in back and forth to work. So yeah, I'm, I don't have any interest in changing right now. So you mentioned where you fly, but where do you typically fly? I I tend to do these Asia trips just because they... Uh, they seem to work out with our family schedule. So tip, typically my trips are 12 to 14 days. I'll leave Louisville, uh, head up to Anchorage, then usually over to Japan. Then over, um, I'll hit Shenzhen, which is in the Pearl River Delta down by Hong Kong. Sometimes we'll go to Hong Kong, Southeast Asia, Penang, Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, Taipei, so all, all the places with the best yeah. food. Yeah, yeah, I you have to like Asian food to do this, or you're in trouble. But it's fun. Yeah, lots of noodles, lots of rice, fresh fruit, 
Hopefully the uh, in-flight catering for your flights home back to Anchorage. <laughs> Get some of those noodles and dumplings. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Shenzhen always puts dumplings on our flights if we want them, and they're they're pretty good. They they have like this garlicky sauce, and you put the dumplings in the oven and heat the sauce up. You can always tell a plane that's been in Shenzhen because you get in it and he's like, oh, dumpling sauce. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, we know where this plane's been. Do you have a favorite city to visit? There's a few. Penang, which is a uh, island off the coast of of Malaysia, is gorgeous. It's uh, probably one of my favorite legs. It's we usually fly from uh, Kuala Lumpur to Penang. It's about a fifty minute flight. It's really fast, but it's really scenic, and it's a resort island with a lot of high tech manufacturing, which is why why we go in and out of there is, uh, for electronics shipments. Beautiful. Beautiful island, though. Singapore is always fun. Is you know what's not to like about Singapore? It's a beautiful city. It's clean, safe, food. So yeah, if anytime I can get a weekend in Singapore, I'll do that. Does your family ever you know say bring this back or you know you have to you know don't don't do this or you know things like that or, or are they just is it kind of like that's going to work? We'll see you later. Yeah, dad's going to work. See you later. Yeah. They, uh, <laughs> The, they, they the, the no mystique idea. is worn off. Yeah, they have no idea where I'm where I'm I'm going. My wife, I, I've got a Google Calendar that I put my schedule on, and then I've shared it with everybody, with all the four kids and and my wife. And my wife will still ask me, like, "Where where are you right now?" I'm like, "Look <laughs> at the Google Calendar." <laughs> it's like I I don't have time for that. Just tell me where you're at. Just just tell me where you are. Yeah, are you in Japan? Are you so, in China? You know, but yeah, she. She'll so know when is, I'm in China. She knows when I'm in China because the internet's terrible, and and like I'll be trying to call her, and like oh shoot, I'm you know I, I can I try Skype, I'll try oh what's the uh, I'm or uh, what's the the Apple FaceTime, FaceTime yeah FaceTime audio, and it'll always cut out, and she'll go, "You're in Shanghai, aren't you?" Like yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know? So I guess you're you're probably uh, cargo pilots. I guess are are a small subset of American pilots that probably get to a lot of these cities. Do you find the air traffic controllers? I guess are they familiar with your accent, or is any of the airspace you go to more difficult than elsewhere? That's a good question. English is the international language of aviation. And the English that's spoken is a is a subset of the English language. It's called ICAO English that all pilots and controllers are supposed to learn. And it's it's a dictionary of I don't I can't remember how many words, but it's there's set words that you have to use. And for for an English speaking person, it's very intuitive. It's not difficult at all. So most places is not too bad. Some places better than others. Uh, Japan, the controllers are awesome. They, the Japanese pilots in the Japanese airlines speak Ikeo English to the controllers. Controllers speak English to to all pilots, including the Japanese pilots. Taiwan, excellent controllers, very good English. Uh, Malaysia's good. China is interesting because they speak Mandarin to Chinese-speaking pilots and they speak English to English-speaking pilots or 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 non-Chinese ch- pilots. You know, like if, if Air France is coming in, they're going to – the Chinese controllers speak English to them, which which is a challenge because you'll hear – 
you'll you'll be hearing two different languages at the same time on the frequency, and you're you're trying to listen for your call sign, and you go, oh, was that us? No, wait, that was Mandarin. Okay, here's us. You know, so China's challenging in that respect, and they're supposed to be switching to English, but they haven't yet. Yeah, I gotta imagine that's disorienting. If you're in crowded airspace and they're talking to other aircraft and you can't understand what they're saying, that, it that's, is. It's that strikes me as really and they're disorienting. Going, you know, rapid fire, rat a tat 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 in English. Then they'll turn right around and and rapid fire clearances in Mandarin. So it is challenging. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't really. I'm trying to think of an airport like JFK where the the controllers speak basically in, in hyperspeed. And I can't imagine going in there not speaking the same language as them and not having, I guess, situational awareness of what everyone else is doing. That's really right. kind of crazy. And, and that is one, one of the things when you're when you're being sequenced for an approach, they might be sequenced. Your, your controller might have, say, six, seven airplanes on the frequency. And you can learn a lot by hearing what he's telling other airplanes. You can figure out where you are in this line of airplanes that, that's coming in by like, oh, he just told that guy to turn, so he must be up here five miles ahead of us. But but when when they're using two languages, it does become a challenge because you don't know who they're talking to or what they told them. But it, that's part of the fun of it. It's a, it's a challenge, which which makes it fun. That's what we're, we're in it for. Ken, I, I, I think we, we need to leave it here, but I want to thank you for, for joining us in, in the long form of the program. Sure. It's my pleasure. And this was a lot of fun to talk to you and, and learn more about uh, – every time we, we talk about cargo, I, I feel like I'm getting like a, a sneak peek into a, a world that is you – know, there's a lot going on there that, that we don't know about. The exclusive world of ketchup, ketchup and king cakes. Uh, and, king cakes. <laughs> and seafood <laughs> and all those other things. Yeah. yeah. So, so thank you so much for for joining us today, and, and for for the glossary terms that, that you're doing. A lot of people loved them in the last episode, and, well, and we're looking forward to to having some more in in future episodes as well. So, yeah, uh, really looking forward to getting some more uh, some glossary super. terms out there. I'm, I've learned a lot just from the first one, so I'm I'm looking forward to see what we've got uh, All right. coming well, up. Well, you in the guys got to shoot me some ideas, and I'll whip them out for you. We will. We'll do that. All right. Ken, thanks so much. We've been talking with, with Ken Hook, a UPS 75776 captain and former Metroliner pilot. <laughs> oh, thanks for having me on. It was my pleasure. And we are back. And I feel like I've learned a lot from Ken every time I talk to him, even when we're not asking him to, to teach us things. I, I feel like we're we're learning a lot. Like, yeah, we've, you know, we've learned a lot about the air freight business on this podcast. I, I feel like we, we've, we've done that because, I mean, it's much less common. So it, it's yeah, been it's been really fun to, to learn more. Don't know about there, especially ketchup and king cakes. Ketchup and king cakes. That's going to be the the name of our annual something. I don't know what. Ooh, that should be the name of the episode. <laughs> I think ketchup and king cake. That's a good good rhyme to it. We'll, we'll we'll see what we can do about that. Quickly, let's let's roll through some some interesting stuff. Qantas's new seven eight seven dash nine goes home tomorrow. Lands in. It'll land – when the podcast is out, it'll land in Australia. And what is that? They're fourth? Something yeah, like that. They're, they're yeah. fourth. Low single digits still. Yeah. And this one, VHZND. So, yeah, ABCD4. Hey, how about that? So smart. I do my best. And so that one has an amazing special livery on it. 
It's pretty fantastical. So it, it's the latest in the the Aboriginal designed special liveries that, that Qantas has put on their planes, and they've got I think three in the fleet right now. I will quadruple check that and and put it in the show notes. But needless to say, th- this is I, I think the the most brilliant one they've ever done. And we'll put a picture of the aircraft in the show notes and and how to track it and and keep tabs on it because it's just a very, very good looking plane. Yeah. Wish it would come out to JFK one of these days to spot it, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. No, probably not. I guess I'd have to uh, head out to LA to see it. I guess the... They'll head out that way. Yeah, but uh, you you could see the the new Lufthansa livery or the new new Lufthansa livery. I really don't want to though. Well, but I mean, who knows? The new new Lufthansa livery could be. Yeah, exciting. that's true. So I think we mentioned a week or one of the previous podcasts that Lufthansa has rebranded. They they've de-yellowed their aircraft, but it turns out that the shade of blue that they picked turns out a little too dark on the aircraft in reality. So they've already halted repainting new aircraft until they kind of tinker around with the exact shade of blue so that it doesn't appear black in the wrong, I guess, uh, lighting. Yeah, it looks black anytime it's not in direct sunlight, which is, well, a problem. Yeah, I I can't imagine how you don't figure that out before you paint a few aircraft. Like, don't we have software for that that can figure that out? I'm not particularly familiar with the very, very technical aspects of painting aircraft and modeling what they're going to look like in various lights, but we can do some research. And this is good though. If they're modifying, they have time to go back and put some yellow back in. <laughs> I, I know that's been a, a big request from a lot of people, including you. So we'll we'll see what they do. So I guess look for a... So Lufthansa will have five different liveries on various aircraft at, at some point with the new new livery. So we'll we'll be on the lookout for that. Qatar finally got their A three fifty one thousand. Yeah, finally. It was supposed to happen like October, <laughs> December good, good couple months finally ago. Finally happened in February. Yeah. So the aircraft was all ready to go, but it was all as typical with Qatar aircraft's interior modification, getting the very high end Q suite seats installed, which like all other fancy products these days, ran long. So the aircraft was ready to go. It just didn't have the seats, which is a problem for an airline. Well, it's not a problem for an airline like UPS. Well, I mean, you kind of need the jump seats and those uh, crew rest seats. Not as many and not as luxurious, but they are there. (laughs) Well, it got delivered. It's in service. It's flying between what, Doha and London right now? Yep. I guess get on that if, if you want. Yeah, it's, I guess the last of or one of the last of the new gen aircraft that we're going to see these yeah. days is not much else in the hopper these days. Yeah, it, it's we're kind of reaching the the end period of this you know introduction of new aircraft. Although I guess you know there's there's the C nine one nine, there's the you know the MC twenty one's coming. So I mean, there's some interesting stuff. But as far as like, there's some stuff. But from the majors, your Boeing and Airbus, you've got the A three thirty Neo, which is, I mean, it's there, but its future is still kind of unknown at this point. Right. There's rumors today that <laughs> I think there was a press release published and then depublished that Hawaiian was switching to the seven eight seven. So who knows what the future is for the three thirty Neo? And with Boeing, who knows if they're actually going to do the 
the seven seven nine seven or whatever the the middle market aircraft right. yeah the 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 enemy the mom the whatever you want to call it right there is the triple seven x in the yeah. near future it's not a clean sheet aircraft but it's not just a simple re-engining so that's something well and and then you know, i mean today the a350 ulr rolled out it's true so, the very so first be, going to singapore yeah, I think it's the same structure. Everything is pretty much the same, except it holds a crap ton more fuel. Well, I mean, when, when you want to fly it for twenty one hours straight, it's you know, it's going to have to. Yeah, so that's going to be used when they want to resume their flights, their nonstop flights from Singapore all the way to L.A. and which they're already doing, and all the way to New York. So a lot happened in the past couple of weeks, and I, I really like talking to Ken. And we learned a lot and we're going to keep learning a lot because he's going to, I don't know why, because he's just a very, very nice person, I guess. Uh, he's going to keep doing the, the glossary terms for us. His knowledge is power and he wants everyone to have power. There you go. That, that's a, I don't think that's it, but we'll go no, with but, it. But we got to get some good suggestions in exactly. for what you want to hear. What, what don't you know? What do you want to know? What do you think you know? And what do you want him to confirm that you think you know that he probably knows? Did that exactly. make sense? Exactly. And yeah. for all of those, email us at podcast at fr24.com or tweet at us, send us a Facebook message, FlightRadar24, both of those platforms, and, and let us know what you want to know more about. And we will do our best to uh, to get Ken to answer those, and and we'll have those on on future episodes. So twenty six episodes in, and we're we're learning things, and I I hope everyone else is too, and I hope everyone else is enjoying it. But if there's something else that you want to hear, if you want us to talk about something else, if you're not enjoying something and you have some complaints, Jason's personal email is email us at podcast at fr24.com. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you like the show, head to iTunes if that's how you found us, or if you listen through iTunes, download through iTunes, give us a rating or a review. It helps people find the podcast especially if we get ratings and reviews. So that's always, you know, something we always want to, you know, talk to more people. So thanks for listening. Episode 26, I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz and thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>